Dog Training Digital presents the eCollars Podcast with Robin McFarlane and Steve Snell. So we talked a little bit about the kind of e-collars that you need and the features of the e-collars, but there's more to training with an e-collar than just the actual e-collar. And so I think that's occasionally missed by people. And so let's talk a little bit about what you consider to be the basic tools to start this type of training. And then let's talk some more about some of the other stuff that, that people might want to use, but, but not necessarily the best equipment for the, for this particular situation. So give me your rundown on what are the basics that you have to have. So the necessities are a leash, a long line, some sort of reward system, and we'll dig into that a little bit, and an additional collar on the neck because we want people to remember you do not clip uh, your leash or your long line to your e-collar. So you need some other kind of equipment around the neck. I have all sorts of reasons for not wanting to attach straight to an e-collar. I haven't convinced all the manufacturers that's a good idea. Why would you not attach your leash to an e-collar? Well, primarily because you're going to potentially change the way the stimulation feels or pull it entirely away from the neck. If you're putting pressure on that leash and you're pulling contact points away from the neck, then that's not good. Skin contact is an important part of of an e-collar. And you also have to have skin contact with both probes. And I think that's something that a lot of people miss out on. You'll see somebody trying to test a collar and they're only touching one probe. And then they're like, I don't feel anything. Well, you got to have, you got to have both probes touch for it to work. So if you have that leash on there, you could get either intermittent contact or no contact whatsoever. And if you're dealing with a dog that's bouncing around, I hadn't really even thought about the completely changing the position of the, of the collar. But I have some of the videos of you working with some of my younger dogs, they're bouncing from one side to the other. And if you're putting pressure on that e-collar, it could move it completely. So I use the term flat collar. You do want a collar that can take some pressure. It needs to have a good solid D D ring on it. And it needs to be strong enough that if a dog's pulling away from you, it doesn't come undone. We sell some adjustable collars. I know that you use some too. I would prefer, especially in the initial training with a dog with any sort of drive, I'm going to want more of a, of a traditional, um, either a standard collar or a, a collar that's going to move a little bit more and it's going to have a little more strength to it. All right. So yeah, you said when you're, I think when you're saying adjustable collar, some of them, a lot of people like the buckles, they just yeah. snap together. Oh, yeah. You better make sure you have one that's going to stay together yeah. if you have an untrained drivey yeah. dog. Yeah. Cause and you I don't want to lose your dog. I do think that is a factor on the dog, how much drive they have. It is one of those things that you don't want to learn the hard. And when I say a standard collar, I think a good description for that is like a men's belt or just a belt. Right. It's a buckle on one end and it's a, a long piece of either nylon or leather or biothane. There's a lot of different, a lot of different options when it comes to collars, but I want something that's sturdy, that's well built, that's going to be able to take a certain amount of pressure. Well, and I think I agree with you 100%. A couple of things that people have asked, they're like, well, can I use a slip collar or can I use a prong collar? And can you? Yes. Would I suggest it on the early training? No. And here's why. If you have already trained your dog to understand how to respond to a slip collar or prong collar pressure, when you're first trying to find a level and you're trying to do some work with the e-collar, how do you know which sensation the dog is actually responding to. And that's where you get a false read. And that's why we're advocating just a regular flat buckle collar. It should be well fitted. It should be sturdy. 
And when we say well-fitted, I think it's really important that people remember, Steve, make sure, I, I, again, this is in the pet side of things, but we see people putting them on uh-uh. and loose. And if your dog backs out of it, you are missing your dog now. Yeah, that is not limited to the pet side. No, and it's surprising, but no. Anytime we have an event or anytime that, that and this is a tricky thing when you're sizing a collar, because it's one of those things where it depends. I want a collar that, that a dog cannot back out of. Um, because there's nothing worse than trying to train and the dog decides I'm going backwards, which can happen. And I'm going one way and the dog's going another. Next thing he slips a collar off of his head and he goes. And some situations for me, not, not all the time, but a lot of times I'll have a situation with a dog where when we start training, I'm going to tighten that collar one hole. And then when we get through, I might loosen it up, you know, but I want a collar that has enough of that's sized to the point where I can do that, where I can go, okay, I've gotten some resistance or I feel like I'm going to get some resistance. I want to be able to tighten this down. And that's one of those things too, where I kind of come back to, I'm not a fan of adjustable collars from a training perspective is that they're harder to, you, know, you have to completely take it off the dog and move several pieces to get it adjusted. Right. And so they're great for just regular collars, or if you've got a dog that walks politely on a leash, they're fine for that. And like I said, we sell them and I'm not opposed to them, but I can tighten a standard collar. I can tighten it on the dog without ever taking the collar off the dog. If I see too much movement in that collar, if I feel like it's going to happen, but then I might reach down and tighten that collar. That's just another part of dog collars. Okay. You're talking about long line. Typically let's talk leash. There's lead, leash, and long line would be the three words that, that I think that are in the pet side of it. I'm going to add a couple of words to that, but give me your take on those three. Well, and I, I suppose I use lead and leash somewhat interchangeably. I'm figuring that's your standard five to six foot piece of equipment that you're walking down the sidewalk, want your dog to be next to you. So that is a piece of equipment that you're going to want when you're doing this early training, but you're definitely going to want a long line, or I think you guys probably refer to a check cord, Yes. but that I want 15 feet, maybe 20. It depends on what you feel you can manage. If you go longer than that, most people are tripping over it and they have a hard time managing the equipment, but you want to be able to have enough distance that you can allow your dog to be out in front of you, explore, be a dog. Cause when you're practicing recalls, if you're only practicing when the dog's six feet away, it's right. not of great value. So typically lead for me is going to be something that's 12 to 18 inches. So I think of lead as being a substantially short. Well, like traffic that, lead. Yeah, traffic lead. That's where I'm going to fall into that. I don't know if that's technically correct. I like a, I like a six foot leash. I think a six foot leash is a good, it's a good work. Some people are going to prefer a four, but I, I won't, I won't hesitate to take a, what I like about a six foot lead is that I can make it a, an 18 inch lead very quickly. I just choke up on it and now it's that, but it's, you can't take a short lead and make it longer. So if we're talking about if it's to me, if it's, if you're, if you want to limit the number of choices, I'm going to probably want a six foot lead. And then I'm going to want somewhere between 15 and 30. It really just depends. And learning how to mm-hmm. manage a rope is a whole nother conversation. Now, would you start talking about long lines that to me, there's, a, I guess, at least three different types. A long line for some folks is going to, a long line for me is going to be a snap on one end and typically nylon or leather, but some of them are going to have a handle on the end and some of them are not. That's kind of a preference thing. There's, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer to that. Typically, if it doesn't have a handle on it, I'm going to refer to it as either a check cord or a drag line where, you know, where you got to be careful with a, with something that you're letting a dog drag. And we'll talk about that. I'm sure at some point, because that's a step in the process of getting a dog off leash. But 
you know, if there's a handle, then that's something for them to get hung up on. I'll take a dog and let him run with a drag line and I'll let him get hundreds of yards away from me with a drag line, but I don't want a knot in it or I don't want a handle in it, anything like that. But you do have to know how to manage that if you're, if you're working a dog on a rope and you don't have either a knot at the end of the rope or a handle, you've got to understand that the distance is in it. So yeah, it is definitely one of those things that you need to get used to in a cup, um, yeah. I think. Oh, I agree with you. Yep. I've got one, I think that's a hundred footer. Mm. It's a long one, but it has been valuable for a few bolting huskies that I've had to work okay. with. <laughs> yep. I've, so. I've had folks, I think 50 is the longest I think we sell right now, but I've had yeah. folks request longer, but a but hundred foot line is a lot to manage. It's a lot to manage. That's a lot to manage. Not yeah. one I like to use very yeah. often. Yeah. So, but. Okay. All right. What else we've talked about? So slip leads or choke chains or pinch collars. We talked a little bit about that. I know folks that use them in conjunction with e-collars and you definitely can, but that's a step in a process. I typically don't do that. I don't know. Do you do much of that? I I have. So I always start with a flat buckle collar. The only time I will put a slip chain or a slip lead or choke collar on a dog that I'm first starting on an e-collar is if there's a serious risk of me getting bit. Then I'll okay. do it simply as a safety measure. As far as a prong collar, no. Again, I don't start out that way because I want to be able to get a close read on is the dog re- responding to stem. Okay. However, I have a number of clients. I've had many clients over the years who either one of two reasons, either A, learning the techniques of e-collar alone to teach heel is just too challenging for okay. So, and usually this is people who have some physical challenges to begin with. So putting a prong collar on can be easier because right. dog puts pressure against a prong sure. collar. They kind of self-correct. So teaching the heel part of a training program, that can be a nice, useful tool in there. Sometimes that is needed. I would definitely, and yeah. I've seen folks try to do it as far as using a prong collar outside of heel and using mm-hmm. it in a recall or anything like that, which I would strongly recommend against not prong collars just aren't designed for that they don't rotate in the way that you need something to rotate on a dog teaching a recall they're really just designed for heel it's pretty much what most of them are made for okay what about harnesses harnesses are harnesses are real popular how do you feel how do you feel about it is for me to spit that word out harness so you're not not a fan well i'm a fan if we're teaching our dog carding I'm a fan if we're doing something like that. But as far as trying to train a dog and we're what, let's say we are trying to teach this recall, the connection point on the traditional harness is on the back and it's on the mid back with somewhere usually around the shoulders. Well, that's center of gravity for most dogs. So trying to turn the dog and give him any kind of direction, any kind of directability needs to happen on the neck. That's why collars are on the neck. That's why show leads are on the neck. You have directional capability. When you put that between the shoulder blades, you have no directional capability, so you can't give the dog any information. So that's number one. Let's go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You're on roll. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm getting it on my roll. Number two, and this is a and this is in the pet world, we've got these no-pull harnesses, and the connection point is typically kind of down in the chest area. I'm trying, you you said I'm not allowed to cuss. I'm not allowed to cuss. So I just, there's nothing that I like about those call, about those harnesses. The reality is, and here's the reality. Every tool's use is based on pressure on, pressure off, right? That's the reality. Pressure on, pressure off. And that's the system we're using to train a dog. When we're using a no-pull harness, 
pressure on, pressure off is across the shoulder blades. And if anybody understands the conformation of a dog, dogs do not have shoulder sockets. They do not have a ball and joint socket as we do. So it is literally just ligaments and muscle that is holding that position into their shoulder. When you cause restriction, that's what a no-pull harness does. It's like putting, what was that called for a horse? You hobble the horse, right? Because they can't take full stride length. Right. That's what a no-pull harness does. It hobbles and impedes motion. Why would I want that on my dog? You're going to cause some problems. Does it stop pulling? Yeah, it does. It doesn't do anything to train the dog and teach him the right thing to do. So as a training tool, I really have nothing good to say about no-pull harnesses. And I certainly am not going to use one when my whole goal with teaching with an e-collar is I want this dog to learn what to do. I don't want to just have some sort of crutch and I'm not going to use something that's potentially causing limitation with full range of motion with the dog. So I, I see, and I see a similar thing here. We typically use harnesses in the sporting dog side as a conditioning. It's used to teach them to pull and it's designed for resistance training. That's how we do a lot of it. But you cannot, in my opinion, I'm not aware of any type of training that we do in them. And the other side too, and I'm not familiar with the no pull harnesses and I, we sell a couple of other just walking style harnesses. But the biggest issue to me with, with most of the harnesses on the market is same thing as far as a loose collar, a dog can back out of a harness. Yeah. And so, so it's definitely not, not only does it, the point of contact would be the term that we would use, but where the dog's feeling that pressure is just in the wrong spot to train for what we're trying to do. So I'm going to find it to be more confusing. And I do believe that people are using these because it is how they're controlling the dog right now. And they don't want to let go of that control and teach them the next step. So that's kind of the, you're going to have to, you may even have to back up a little bit where you have this dog and you can walk him as long as he's wearing the snow pole harness. As soon as you take it off, you can't walk him anymore. That's where the training part of the collar comes in. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, I'll always say there's always an exception, right? There's been the occasional dog that truly had some trachea problems because right. that's always the story, right? There has been the occasional dog and I've worked them on a harness. I just think for somebody that's learning this system, unless you absolutely have been told you must have to have this dog in a harness and you've been told by a vet who has told you specifically the physical difficulty your dog has, then use a regular collar. All right. It's just going to give people a lot more leverage. So, yeah. yeah. Alrighty. Okay. So we've got our collar. We've got our lead leash, long line check cord, whichever part you need. What else outside um, of that? So I, I said, so I said a reward system is a necessity, right? Okay. Because we're a reward system means what are we going to do to teach the dog? What are we going to do to reward the dog when he gets it right? So A, it's the first reward is pressure goes away, right? Dog is learning how to control pressure. We're using the e-collar, pressure goes away. So that okay. is your first reward. But we want to follow that up with what I believe to be a primary reward, something that is intrinsically rewarding to the dog. Some people say, can I just use praise? Can I just use petting? There's obviously value in praise and in touch and that kind of thing, but that is not, in my opinion, a primary reward to the dog. A primary reward is something that's, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's a genetically required for them. They need food. Food is a primary reward. For your dog that, for your bird dogs, to chase the bird would be a primary, something that is part of their makeup, part of their DNA, so to speak. Things that motivate the dog with or without you involved. 
that's the type of primary thing that I'm talking about. So I want people to use something like that as their main reward when they're starting. We can wean off of it. I know that people are very afraid of getting too involved with food because they're afraid of getting dependent on it. You're going to wean off of it just like anything else. For dogs that really like to chase, I like to use toys a lot of times too. The problem with using chase, the ability to chase or fetch or tug or something like that, that's fantastic. I love using toys for training. The thing that people have to remember is if you're going to use something like that, it's going to slow down your process a little bit because you actually have to allow time for the dog to enjoy it. So if I'm teaching a dog a sit behavior, I could probably do double or triple the amount of repetitions in the same amount of time as opposed to somebody that's got to throw the ball, let the dog fetch the ball, bring the ball back, right? So some sort of primary reward, my recommendation is food on the front end of it. I think that's the fastest, easiest. And then as the dog gets into it, that's when you shift into some of these other reward systems. But you don't ever take it entirely out of the picture either. Rewards are part of why the dog is doing this, right? I mean, for you guys, it's because he gets to go hunt. For my when I was doing protection training, it's because eventually I'm going to get to bite something. Yes. So rewards are always part of it. If you do, even some people, one, one of the things I teach people, like if somebody says, well, my dog is really, he likes to critter. He really likes to go after the squirrel. He really likes to go after this. Okay. And that's a problem. And they want to be able to control it because they can't stop him from bolting out sure. the door or running across the street. Well, you can use these, you can use your treats and that kind of things as a reward. And you can teach the dog, but what if, We ultimately can give the dog the reward of permission to go do the thing that he really wants to do. That was the problem to begin with. How cool does your dog think you are once you've trained to that capability that you get to go chase a squirrel when I say you can? Nice. Yeah, that's that's something that that I don't think people grasp is how much that's built into. I've had people say to me, I can't believe you make that dog go hunt. And yeah. Really? Yeah, I don't make them, yeah, I make them do certain things, but the hunting is not what I make them do. And they would go without me if they could drive, if they could, they had, (laughs) yeah, I'm just the chauffeur. Okay. So I, at a certain point in my career, I was very anti-food training and I'm not really sure why I, I, I have a problem with it. It's not a problem with it. It's one of those things that you have to be careful about it because eventually at certain stages, it no longer works in certain situations. It's not enough of a reward to take them off Mm -hmm. of other things, but it works so well. People get stuck when you say, well, you treat train in that it's like you treat train and that's all you do. And that's not even close to true. And I'm a big fan of the pay me the, and I see this with a lot of, I think this is more of the pet side than it is some of the others. But it's the, okay, I did what I'm supposed to do. Pay me. It's like, you're a little, you're a little dispenser and they do it and you reward them and they do it again and you reward, do it again and they reward them. And you can see these dogs just go up and they are clipping along because if you've got a dog that, that is heavily food motivated, which most of them are, you could speed up the process and make it enjoyable for them. And so I'm a gigantic fan of it, but people do not seem to grasp that it is a, okay, well, we do it here and we do it here, but it's not something that we do all the time. And it's not one of those things where if a dog's, you know, and I have a tendency to go to the, he's doing something dangerous, chasing a car. We're not going to be going, I have a biscuit. I have a biscuit. That's not how it works. And I think people get stuck on that. What do you do with a dog that's not food motivated? Do you see that often? And then my other question, I have two partners. I have, what do you do with a dog that's not heavily food motivated? 
And what do you do with a dog when you're doing an enormous amount of treat training? How do you keep him from becoming a chunky monkey? <laughs> well, okay. So every dog is food motivated. Okay. You just haven't learned how to turn that on. So the dogs typically that we struggle with on the front end have probably been free fed. If they have a smorgasbord in front of them all the time, then they really don't ever get hungry per se. Okay. So there is a lot to be said about feeding in a timed fashion. When you say free fed, you mean they have food available to them 24-7? Well, people feed the, people put the, people put the food down and they leave it there. Okay. So the dog can choose when they want to graze and when they want to walk away from it. Put the food down. If you're going to feed that way, put the food down and take it away in 10 minutes. And if they don't eat it, then you bag it up and you can give it at the next meal. Okay. Now you're developing an appetite rather than a dog who's satiated all the time, right? So now you're developing an appetite. So now you can use that to your advantage. Better yet, why don't you take that breakfast or dinner portion and why don't you use that to train the dog? Once you've got him to the point where he gets used to eating at certain times of the day and he's actually hungry, now you use that to train the dog. So yes, I think every dog has to eat. If the person tells me their dog is not food motivated, as a general rule, that is not a dog that is extremely thin. That is the dog yep. who is pre-fed, eats whenever he wants to. And maybe as far as the ones you don't want to get too heavy and that kind of thing, it's possible that people are not being disciplined about their feeding and what they're doing. I'm this is kind of an off the subject a little, but I'm a fresh food feeder. I don't feed kibble, right? So that makes it even more challenging for me sometimes to figure out how am I going to work with my dogs? Because I can't take a pocket full of right. kibble to, to work with them. But I can take some of the things that are in their diet and I can, you know, I can freeze dry the liver. If I'm feeding them liver, I can freeze dry the liver. And now it's part of their daily ration of calories, but I can use it as their treat. So that's the thing about preventing obesity is don't feed them their regular meal and add in all these treats in order to right. get the training. You have to compensate somewhere. Either take part of the meal, use that for the training, or cut part of the meal calories out because you're going to be making it up with whatever treats and that kind of thing that you're using for the dog. And as far as treats, when we are treat training, my preference is that people use something that's actually helpful, beneficial to the dog. So freeze-dried liver or the regular food is going to be one of the better choices that they can make rather than some of the junk on the market. That's the, uh, so I think that's the key thing that, that folks need to take away from it, that, you know, it, that those calories are not free. And if you're doing an enormous amount of that, and like I said, with a young dog or with a dog that is food motivated, which is going to be most of them, I mean, you can do some rapid stuff and you can do it young because their puppies will eat until they pop. And mm -hmm. so I've seen some really cool things. I've seen you do some really cool things with young dogs and food. And it is definitely a, it's definitely a way to go, but you do have to, you do have to factor in some things. I tell you one thing that you definitely have to have, and this is not even being salesy, but you do have to have an easy way to carry it and to get, and to get to it. Yeah. Um, and depending on what you feed, a pocket full of some dog foods is not going to work out for you. So, so there are some tricks to that. There's treat bags and belts and a lot of different things that you can use. You need to find something that works well for you where you can access it quickly or it needs to be something that you can have two or three of them in your hand already. Yeah, I would consider it a requirement. If people are going to train with me, I set a leash and I set a reward system. I require a treat bag 
because I don't want to, if you're putting the treats in the pocket of your jeans, timing just can't sure. be that precise to get yeah. at it. You have yeah. to have it, be able to get at it quickly and easily. So I'm a big advocate for some kind of pouch. Well, I think it's probably a, the treat training is probably a, an entire conversation in and of itself, but I've always been, I've learned a lot about it from watching you because especially on the front end, you're pretty generous with them. If they, if they, they move in the action that you want or they, you'll pay them quickly, but it, it works. I mean, they will step to it. Well, um, I think, yeah, well, we might want to talk about that sometime, but just what you're doing is you're developing kind of an addiction, not addiction to the food. You're developing an addiction to the job. Yeah. Because if they learn early on, the job equals reward reliably. Right. As you wean back on the how the ratio of rewards, you have maintained that addiction. It's the same. Why do people pull the lever of slot machines? Sure. You don't get paid every time. But boy, if you win a couple times, you want to keep right. playing the game. And yeah. that's what we're trying to do is get the dog to want to keep playing the game. Okay. So we've talked about leashes and collars and reward systems. What else, what else have you got? When we um, talked about the three action, there were the place command was something yes. we talked about. So what are your requirements, a place board? Well, I do like having, I think people should have a place board, at least one. If not, I have multiples that would, if you're really going to get into it, you should have multiples. And I think it, what you're choosing for a place board is going to depend on what is your goal? What are you trying to teach? In my world, if you're just teaching a pet to go to the place in order to chill out and relax, then it could be a large pillow. It could be a dog bed. It can be one of the type of place boards that have some give to them there, like a little cot type of thing. Sure. So those are great for that. Those are not the best choice if you're actually going to do some precision work, meaning you want your dog to come straight to front. You want your dog hitting a tight heel position. If you're going to do directional work, you want boards that are stiff, very durable. You're going to be dragging those things around out in the out in different environments. And you want those to be a lower profile. The dog can see them, but you don't want them so big and obvious the way you're not going to put the big dog bed out there to right. teach directional, so to speak. So... The boards are going to depend on what goals you have for your dog. People need to go into training, in my opinion, with a little bit more thought process first. Instead of going into it thinking, well, I'm just really frustrated and I need to solve this problem. What do you want the dog to do? And that's the advantage in the bird and the gun dog world. You guys have a, they have a goal. They yeah, know what they specific. want. Yep. Pet people go into it kind of backwards. I just want to stop doing things. And sure. I got to encourage them to think about what do you want? Because that's going to determine our equipment and what we're going to need to get to those end goals. So so when we talk about play, we talk about teaching a place command. The advantage that folks need to understand is that having a very defined area is beneficial for the dog. You don't want it to be too small, too big, but it needs to be raised up. And so, yeah, you definitely can do that with almost anything. I've seen a lot of folks that will use just mats, but I like to give them a little more advantage and having that height makes it a very obvious thing. But, you know, the other cool thing about so there are a lot of commercial place boards and you'll see people talking about them online and they're like, oh, well, this is, you can get this or you can get this, or I just I build my own. That's all great. The biggest advantage of the commercial place boards, in my opinion, is that they're stackable Yeah, and, and they're not incredibly heavy yeah. because if you build, I know some guys that will take like old tires and put, put a piece of plywood on top of it and they work great, but you don't want to carry four of them out into the field. That, that needs to be, that's a permanent setup. And you could build, you could very easily build a place board with some one by twos or two by four and, and plywood, but they're not going to, they're not going to be light. 
And so, uh, so some of the commercial place boards have that advantage in that if you drag four or five of them out into the field, you can carry them. And I would agree with that very much. I think it's fine if you got your setup and your homemade stuff in your right. backyard, but I think yeah. you want those commercial pieces because all of us should want our dog to be well diversified in their understanding of how to perform any individual behavior. And in order to get well diversified, you got to go to different places. You have to expose them to a lot of different environments and work in different situations. So I'm with you. I want something stackable. I want it durable. I want it easy to clean. I want to put them in my car. So if I pull over into a field, I can throw some things out there. We can do 10 minutes of work and we can hit the road easily and pick that stuff up. So how quickly will you go on a dog when you're teaching place because i've seen you do i mean i've seen diva stand on almost anything i don't know how small you can get away with but you know if she, once she identifies it as a place she'll get on do you move to that quickly i mean is that something that you start using early on I, people people yeah. get stuck in the idea that we can only teach on these things it's not restricted yeah i do i typically start to generalize somewhere between day three and five of okay. any given behavior so that means I've probably put in maybe three days in one environment, but I'm starting to switch by. So yeah, so I'll go out. I mean, a place could be anything. And as sure. you said, if it has some elevation, we can go out to a park and we can get on a tree stump, a boulder, a picnic table, just about anything. Yeah. So, it, and I will say, and let me throw this in there because people think their dog can't do something. That's so mm. often. Yeah. They, and they can. You said Diva can get on small things. I had a great Dane. I had a client really motivated and they got their great. And now it didn't happen in the first week, but they got their great Dane. This 120 pound dog on a Rubbermaid step stool that had a platform about 12 by 12. Woo and That's... he collected all four paws there and it was a thing of beauty. And here's the cool thing about doing that stuff. The dog was so proud of himself. He was so proud. You would have thought he had just yeah. gotten an Olympic gold medal. He was like, I did it, man. That was so cool. I find the agility stuff to be quite fascinating. I have absolutely no background in it whatsoever. And I don't know how much agility you've done, but I think it is very rewarding to the dogs. And I, that's a little bit of a, a leap, but I've watched my oldest son has done a little bit of it and it's pretty neat to watch. Yeah. Dogs love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the advantages of this kind of training give you the ability to do more with your dogs. And I think that's, I think that's something that, that you touched on. People tend to come to this type of training because they're frustrated and it would be better if they would come to it going, okay, I want to be able to do all of these things yeah. because dogs are so much happier when they are able to do. And when you can't trust them, it, they become more of a hassle than a pleasure, which is what they're supposed to be. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we're talking a minimal investment, right? We're talking about a yeah. color, a leash, a long line, a lead, and a place board. Yeah. And you so, put the work in, you get a lifetime of a better relationship. Yeah. And, and all of this stuff too is stuff that's going to last and that you're going to be able to use in other situations. And so, so not really, it's not a gigantic investment. And, and really what you can do with a dog that has those particular skills, it just, it just changes the relationship so much just makes it so much better yeah definitely. all right okay right. well thanks again and appreciate it enjoy speaking with you yeah you too thanks for joining us for more information or to purchase robin's online dog training programs visit ecollars.com this is robin mcfarland's ecollar training this video series takes a systematic approach to ecollar use 
from introduction to off-leash control. Three dogs of varying personalities were adopted from a shelter environment and trained daily over the course of three weeks. This series captures the real-time footage starting from day one of introducing the e-collar and progresses to the point of off-leash control and working around real-world distractions. Robin takes you step-by-step step through the process of laying a foundation, solving common problems, working through distractions, and graduating to off-leash freedom. The systematic approach and detailed instruction is designed specifically with the novice e-collar user in mind, but even experienced trainers will find a gem or two to add to the training toolbox. Each of the dogs in this video series, Grace, Brandy, and Bonnie, started training within 72 hours of being adopted from a shelter environment. What you will see is real-time training sessions, not special editing or previously trained dogs. Watch dogs with different temperaments being worked through challenges toward the goal of off-leash control and a greatly improved relationship with their handler. Robin's e-collar instructional materials are clear, concise, and never sacrifice the physical or emotional well-being of the dog. With this training, your dog will be calmer, more controlled, and be able to experience the joy of off-leash freedom. If you've longed to be able to trust your dog off-leash, but don't have the confidence to start training with an e-collar, this video series is for you. Any dog owner that is interested in learning an easier way to communicate with their dog while gaining off-leash reliability will benefit from this DVD series. This five disc set will take you step by step through the process from starting the training and finding a level up through working around distractions and being ready to go off-leash.